We're going to read in the Word of God before we sing again. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's read together from verse 1. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we've been working our way through 1 Peter since last autumn. And now we come to chapter 3. One Peter three verse one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of God. Let's just pray one moment again before we sing. Gracious Father, now with this passage open in front of us as we prepare to turn to it and to think about it together, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. This will land differently on all of us to some degree this morning. Some of us are unmarried. Some of us are in that situation and, and, and rejoice in that. Thank you for the good, honorable, fitting lifestyle that not being married is shown to be in your word. Thank you that it is a good thing not to be married. And we pray for those who are unmarried as they hear about the challenges of their friends who are married, that you would be with them. Some of us this morning have been bereaved of our life partner, bereaved of a husband, bereaved of a wife. And as those in that category hear this this morning, there will be a great tenderness in their hearts. There will be, there will be pain and sadness and a huge sense of loss. Father, you are able to draw near and to encourage and bless and strengthen your people in that situation this morning. Some of us, Heavenly Father, have been through the tremendous pain of the dissolution of a marriage relationship. And we'll hear that differently this morning from that perspective. And we ask for them your great grace, your peace, a growing confidence in you, a growing love and trust in the Lord Jesus. Some of us this morning are wives. Some of us are husbands. And we want to hear your voice. Some of us are young people still to face these things, perhaps. Gracious Father, grant that in whatever our circumstance today, your voice will be heard. We will know that it is you who are speaking. And what we pray for ourselves, we pray for everyone who wants to proclaim and to hear your word today. We pray for our brother Jonathan as he preaches up at Glenrothes Baptist Church this morning that you would be near him to comfort and strengthen and encourage him and make him a blessing to your people there as he and Simon were a blessing to this people 
last Sunday. And again, as Jonathan will be, we trust this evening. So undertake for us in these things, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen to that. Please take your seats and let's turn back to 1 Peter 3. Last week as I prepared to turn to this uh, section with us this morning, I had my attention drawn to a double-page spread in a Scottish newspaper from last Monday reporting a pastor who preached in a section of the Bible, either this one or one very similar to the one we have before us this morning. And the article was full of outrage and astonishment at his Old Testament values. It equated them to something from The Handmaid's Tale, if you know that book and the TV series. And the article told how this pastor in the church had been reported by the Secular Society in Scotland to the Charities Commission for saying that wives should submit to their husbands, the very thing that we've just read in 1 Peter 3 verse 1. And it made me realize afresh how essential the early part of this letter is in laying the foundations for what we now come to this morning. Peter took a substantial part, as you know, of chapter 1 and chapter 2 to explain what God has done in calling a people to himself, in sending his son to pay for their sin by his death, thus setting us free, and in reconciling us to him by faith, and reconciling us, therefore, to one another. And week after week since last October, we've poured over the details of the new birth, of what it is to be made new, born again by the living and enduring word of God. And it's good that we took that time because what we come to now makes no sense unless a person is born again, as Peter, Peter's original readers were. We saw uh, two Sundays ago how Peter now moves into what we might call the ethical section of his letter. He laid down all the doctrinal material in the first chapter and a half, and now he moves in the midway point or towards the end of chapter two into this ethical, practical section. What does this look like? Showing us a new life in Christ actually is going to be like. And we're reminded of the significance of that order in the way that people presents his, the way that Peter presents his material, namely that there can be no new life without new birth. So what we're coming to look at today is part of what it means to, to live a new life in Christ. It's impossible to live this way without the new birth. No new life without the new birth. But also, the other half is also true, that if there is no new life, if there is not a change in my attitude and a change in my action, a change in my conduct, then there has been no new birth because the new birth does lead to a new life. So as I read the article in the newspaper, and perhaps you've seen it or read things like it, I have a degree of sympathy with the journalist who wrote that article. I have a degree of sympathy with his editor who signed off on it and with the secular society who are up in arms about the verses we come to look at today because how can you see the beauty of the new life that the Lord Jesus calls us to if you've never known the new birth that he makes available to those who will put their trust in him and so I think the only thing that's going to help that kind of scathing article is ultimately not when we argue, but when 
those folks who are up in arms hear and respond to the gospel of a Savior who loved them and gave himself for them. And that's why evangelism is so important. And that's why evangelism is at the top of Peter's agenda, even in this ethical section. He wants those who do not obey the word to be one and to come to know this great salvation. Think for a moment about what a difference the end of chapter 2 makes to the beginning of chapter 3. So chapter 2, verse 24, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were straying like sheep. Think of how insecure that was. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter's readers have been awakened as all of us who know Christ have been to the fact of our natural straying from the Lord and to the wonder that our shepherd came and gave his life, took upon himself the terrible consequences of our sinful waywardness, so that by his wounds, by what he suffered on the cross, we are healed, not harmed. And now we have such security because we've returned to the one who is the shepherd and overseer, not just of our bodies and of our lives, but of our eternal souls. So when we come to the aspects of biblical teaching about ethics and conduct as Christians, even though they may still shock us, even though what we read here this morning might still go against the natural grain of our thinking, nonetheless, we've got to know that this is the word of our loving Heavenly Father and of His Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So we hear the teaching in that loving context. This is the new life that accords with the new birth. Well, let's get to it. First of three things for us to consider this morning. Number one, the context. Let's set it in its context as we always try to do. It's really important to see these seven verses of chapter three as part of a bigger picture here. To everyone in the church family, Peter wrote chapter two, verse 12. Have a look at it. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's exactly what we've just been talking about. They may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So then, as now, there was a backlash against the Christian community. They were being falsely accused of being evil people. For example, they were accused of being untrustworthy, disloyal citizens because they didn't worship the emperor. And so what is the answer? The answer of verse 12 of chapter 2 is to be honorable. Verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And Peter goes on to talk about the uh, emperor and the governors and those who are sent to administer justice and how we're to be honorable and respectful to them. Then Christians rejoiced in the newfound freedom that they had in Christ. And they were telling their friends and their colleagues about this new freedom they had in Christ but this was spoken against as an evil and they were for example perhaps accused of having a reputation for insubordination of just being kind of flaky people who, who, who could never be trusted to do anything properly and were difficult in the workplace and again the answer was to be honorable chapter 2 verse 18 servants be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So when I say context, we've seen this pattern over the last two weeks as Jonathan has hugely helpfully taken us through these sections. 
We've seen the pattern where the believers were to be subject for the Lord's sake to the government and to their employers. And now in that context, we come to see how what it means to live the new life within the context of marriage. And you can imagine how Christian marriage was spoken against. Imagine uh, Antonius, if you like, standing with his friend at the garden fence, talking over the fence and pointing up to the neighbors next door. You know, Erastus and Cleopas, you know, they used to have such a happy marriage until she ran off and became one of these Christians, one of these nutcases. And now all she wants to do is go to their meetings. And anytime she does spend it home, all she does is bend his ear about becoming one of the Christians as well. I'm telling you, Christianity is going to destroy the fabric of our society. What was the answer? To live honorably among the Gentiles. To do good. To silence the foolish, ill-informed gossip. So, chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands who had a pretty brutal relationship with their wives and household in this, in this period of time that we're talking about. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that your prayers not be hindered. You see, in both cases, the, 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 the likewise at the beginning of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 7 links these verses to the wider context in two ways. First of all, the role of the Christian wife and the role of the Christian husband both were being spoken of, spoken against, spoken of as evil. What these Christians do is evil. The way these wives behave now that they become Christians is evil. The way that these husbands behave is evil because the wives just have to submit to them and they can do what they like with them. That's exactly what we're seeing in the newspaper now. It's exactly the same criticism. It was being spoken of as evil. That's the first way it links them. The second way the word likewise links them is that the instruction Peter gives is to help the husband and help the wife do good and silence the critics as they develop attitudes as husband and wife that take the Lord seriously. And that's the pattern all the way through for how we deal with government, for how we relate to government, for how we relate to employers, for how we relate within the marriage relationship, and in chapter 5, how we relate to elders in the, in, in the local church. So number one, the context. Number two, the commands. Let's start with the wives as Peter does. Chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject or be submissive to your own husbands. So let's just be clear on what Peter means. He's calling Christian wives to be subject, to be submissive, meaning to honor their husbands, to respect the headship role into which God calls a husband, to honor that, to respect it in such a way that the wife doesn't reject it or resist it, but encourages her husband and helps him take that God-given role seriously in the marriage and in the family. That's what we're talking about. This is how a married woman who is a Christian shows her submission to the Lord. 
And as we sing, Lord, I give you my heart and I give you everything and I, 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 I bow at you and I fall at your feet. This is what this looks like to fall at the Lord's feet for the Christian wife. This is what it looks like for her, chapter 2, verse 13, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution, including the institution of marriage, which is God's institution. Now, I wonder how you hear this. Maybe chapter 3, verse 1 sounds ridiculously outdated or irresponsibly dangerous. Maybe there is an, an instant hackles up rejection of this sentence. Maybe it does sound to you like a handmaid's tale, a kind of dystopian nightmare. Maybe it comes across as demeaning, insulting, liable to make a wife vulnerable. Maybe you find your mind racing to all the potential circumstances that make this an outrageous principle for anybody to read and teach and uphold as I'm doing today. Well, I want you to know, if you're feeling these things, I, I, I totally get it. There have been some horrendous things done in the name of upholding this verse to wives and to women. And that's part of the context in which we hear this today. So I thought it might be helpful at this point to clear the ground of negatives. And what I'm going to say is very minimal in this section, but I want to make it clear what submission does not mean purely from what we can see that lies on the surface of the text. For example, first of all, this kind of honoring of the husband's headship role in marriage is not absolute. In other words, what Peter calls wives to categorically does not mean that they have to do whatever their husband says. And we know that because of what we've already seen in chapter 2, verse 15. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Because this honoring of her husband, honoring of his God-given headship role, is her way of submitting to the Lord. If her husband ever tried to engage himself or her in anything that was not good, as God defines it, then there is no conflict. She does not submit to that. Secondly, we can say this kind of honoring of the husband's headship role, this kind of submission, does not require the wife to abandon her own personal convictions. Does not mean that she has to change her mind on key issues. How do we know that? Well, look at what Peter says in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, meaning they, they don't believe and love and follow the Lord Jesus. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do you see how clear it is that her submission to her husband does not require her to have to just accept his disobedience to the gospel, his not knowing and not caring and not being interested in the Lord Jesus, his speaking ill against Christ and his people. She doesn't just have to accept that because she's submitting to him. She doesn't have to give up on her longing for him to come to know the Lord. She can be submissive and still retain her own convictions, her own longings, her own essential identity. This 
wife, in verse 1, doesn't agree with her husband on the most important issue a person will ever face. That is, how, in, how do you relate to the Lord Jesus? And Peter is encouraging her not to cave in on that, but she may still be a loving, loyal, submissive wife. Thirdly, this kind of honoring of the husband's headship role, this submission, does not require the wife to surrender any effort to change her husband's mind. That's the whole point of verse 1. That the unbelieving husband, if there is one, may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And lastly, this kind of honoring of the husband's headship role, this kind of submission, does not require the wife to have to tolerate a situation of physical, psychological, spiritual, or moral vulnerability. That is expressly not what Peter was consigning these wives, his sisters in Christ, to. And we know that because of the vision he has for husbands. Because of the command he gives them in verse 7. Have a look at it. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, as we get to this, isn't it very striking that Peter doesn't turn to the husbands and say, likewise, husbands, you can thank me later. He doesn't say that. He doesn't give the impression to the husbands, now we've nailed submission, so you guys are on the couch. No, these guys, these husbands are on their knees. Having a submissive wife does not take the pressure off the husband and give him less to do. It puts more significant pressure on the husband to honor that, to respond in a godly way to that. Peter doesn't tell them to see to it that their wives submit to them. There was plenty of that abuse going on at the time and, and tragically has been down through history. I've often thought that the hassles wives have with verse 1 is due often to the mess husbands make of verse 7. Now what Peter says to the husbands was strikingly countercultural. In a day when women and wives had next to no legal representation or framework of protection, the husbands are called to get their sleeves rolled up. He's told that his wife's submission doesn't mean he can forget about her apart from when he needs something. No, this kind of husband to whom a wife may joyfully uh, submit and trust is one who lives with her. Notice the words there in verse 7. Likewise, husbands live with your wives. And you say, well, of course they, they live with their wives. But think of the full meaning of that. This is a husband who shares all of the ups and downs of life with his wife. He shares life with her. He lives wife with her. Lives life with her. There are no areas of his life, his life that are off limits to her. There are no areas of his life that she knows nothing about. Because he lives wife, oh, here we go. Because he lives life with her, he inevitably wants to spend time with her. He wants to share with her. 
He wants to listen to her so that he gains an understanding of her in all her amazing, complex uniqueness. He lives with his wife in an understanding way. Literally, he lives according to knowledge. Knowledge of God, knowledge of his word, and knowledge of that wife. He needs to know who she really is. He needs to know what does she love? What makes her laugh? What does she hate? What makes her cry? What does she aspire to? What does she fear? What encourages her? What discourages her? Now, husbands, if these questions were typed on a sheet, could we accurately answer them knowledgeably? To live with her, to love her in an understanding way. I wonder, can you see this morning, it's the polar opposite of Margaret Atwood's dystopian misogyny in The Handmaid's Tale. There's just no room for that in the biblical text. We need not be browbeaten by the culture. We need not be afraid to stand under the searchlight and under the authority of the word of God. And not only is the husband to invest himself so that he knows his wife and can read her and can understand her and can appreciate her, he is to honor her. Verse 7, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, sisters, don't get annoyed at Peter for reminding husbands that their wives are weaker vessels. He doesn't mean mentally or spiritually or emotionally weaker. I'm sure I'm not the only man in here who would say, I have seen strength in women that I've yet to see in any man. He doesn't tell the wives that they are weaker. He doesn't make that a point of teaching to them. Rather, what he's doing with the husbands is making a comparison. Both the husband and the wives are vessels. And he's reminding the husband that in all likelihood he will have a natural physical strength advantage over his wife. And he does so because in the depths of male brokenness and in the depths of male patheticness, if there is such a word, men sometimes use that physical advantage against their wives and against their children or the threat of it. And Peter won't have that. Male headship in marriage is not predicated on men being bigger and stronger. Peter cuts right through that here. It's actually not predicated on men being better or brighter either. Because they're not. In complete contrast to that, Husbands are to honor their wives. They are to work hard at making them feel cherished, unique, precious, not weak, not servile, not taken for granted. And this next sentence would have been shocking when Peter wrote it. The reason for that is they are, verse 7, heirs with you, joint heirs with you, of the grace of life. He's reminding husbands that while there are complementary differences between the husband and the wife, they are joint heirs with identical inheritance in God's sight. 
That never happened in the society in which Peter was writing. The sons always did better than the daughters when it came to the carve-up. But not here. Absolute equality in God's sight. So the submission of the wife to the husband is not on the grounds that she is less valuable and less worthy. They are joint heirs of the gracious gift of life. And if they're believers, they're joint heirs of the gracious gift of eternal life through knowledge of the Lord Jesus as Savior. Both the husband and the wife get an equal share of God's good gift of life. And Peter says to the men, you're probably bigger, you're probably stronger. Use that strength not to diminish your wife, but to honor your wife. Because as God looks on you, he loves her every bit as much as he loves you. And he honors her every bit as much as he honors you. And he has given her a share of life exactly the same amount as he gave you. That must mean, therefore, that there is nothing intentionally life-limiting for a wife in honoring her husband in the lead role. And equally, there is nothing life-enhancing for the husband in the lead role because they are joint heirs of the gracious gift of life. They are equals before God. He's established an order of responsibility for marriage. The context and the command, now we get to the crux. Let's close by seeing the decisive point at issue here in the lives of the wife and of the husband. And the crux of the whole matter of the thing is this. How much does the Lord matter to you, husband, wife? That's pivotal. That's the crux. Let's notice how Peter writes to the wives in verses 3 to 6. He tells them, as we'll see in a moment, that there's a movement worth joining. But first of all, there's a look worth perfecting. Do not let, verse 3, do not let your adorning, that means your beauty, your appearance that you work on, do not let that be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning, let your beauty, let your appearance that you work on be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, one of Peter's favorite words, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, we shouldn't miss here, Peter. He is no more saying to the wives that you shouldn't go and get your hair done or wear jewelry than he is saying you shouldn't wear clothes at all. If, if you were going to make a, an absolute ban on going for a perm, I don't know if that's still a thing, uh, <laughs> Evidently not. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, going, going to the salon and treating yourself and getting a nice hairdo. Is that the phrase? He's no more speaking against that or wearing appropriate jewelry. He's no more speaking against that than he is putting on clothes. But he is saying to wives, don't let the outward appearance that you work on be all that there is to you. Don't let that be all that you cultivate as you pour over the magazines. 
By all means, do that. By all means, present yourself as well as you possibly can. Nothing wrong with that. But also remember verse 4. The hidden beauty of the heart. The imperishable beauty. Imperishable beauty. What would the world give to be able to discover a formula for imperishable beauty? With all these proteins and protons and various things that you see in the adverts on the TV that make your skin fill out and take the lines away. I pay attention to these things. I find them probably quite needful as the time passes as well for myself. But we're surrounded by that. What would the world give? What would the marketplace give today for a formula for imperishable beauty? And here it is. And the striking thing about verse 4 is that however naturally assertive or however assertive, even if not naturally to her, a wife has to be in the classroom or in the courtroom or in the canteen or at the check-in or the check-out or in the factory or on the field of play, however assertive a wife and a woman may have to be in that situation, Peter's not talking about that, but he is saying in her relationship with her husband, where no, no doubt she has volcanic pressure to assert herself at times, Peter's saying there is a way to do so that is not harsh, but gentle. There is not brash, but quiet a way that honors God, a way that reaches for hope in him, a way that trusts him, even when you disagree. There's a way of holding on to your convictions as we've seen. There's a way of not being browbeaten and not having to change your mind, but also of honoring the Lord and the order that he has established. And that overflowing heart of gentleness that quietness cultivated because she has returned to the Lord Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of her souls, is because she wants, above all, to honor him. This is my desire, we sang, to honor you. This is what it looks like for the wives. Now, for the husbands, we're coming to that, but let's not miss this. And when a wife does that, no matter how able and assertive she may be in other appropriate contexts, when she does that for his glory, she looks stunning to God. Because he sees the beauty of her hope in him, of her willingness to recognize the order he has established for everyone's good. So verse 4 isn't talking about a certain type of personality, a naturally quite shy, retiring, retiring kind of person. No, this is a revelation of a heart set on pleasing God. Because this heart knows that this is a look he loves. It's a look worth cultivating. Secondly, 
there's a movement worth joining. And I put it that way because there are all kinds of movements for women nowadays who are sick of being mistreated. And some of them have done a great measure of good. Well, here's another one. Here's a good one to belong to. It's called the Daughters of Sarah. Verse 5, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed, her, obeyed Abram and calling, called him her Lord. And you're her children, says Peter. You can belong to that movement. And how we need strong, godly women to belong to this movement. And look how strong they're going to have to be. You're our children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What a staggering picture of strength. That's, it's, this is a gutsy, active, feminist movement. Feminist in the sense that it's for women who are right in the front line of the biggest pressures and the biggest hassles and even the biggest vulnerabilities of life. What were these women like? They were holy. In other words, they were ultimately submitting themselves to God, not their husbands. Their submission to him, to the husband, came because of their submission to God. They were holy. They were dedicated to him. They were hopeful. Verse 5, they hoped in God. They didn't hope primarily in their husbands. They hoped ultimately in God. And yet that worked itself out in their lives in a remarkable way. They trusted God. They trusted the order he'd established. And so they adopted a heart attitude towards their very human, often hopeless, generally unimpressive husbands. Because that was the way their trust and submission to the Lord shone through. Peter says, Sarah even called Abraham Lord. It happened once. It happened in Genesis 18. And it wasn't a moment when Abraham looked at his finest and from a heart full of love and adoration and admiration, this was drawn forth and she said, oh, Abraham, you're my Lord. No, it was not a fine moment for either of them. It was a moment when Sarah and Abraham were so aware, so aware of how advanced they were in years and had all the usual accompanying frailties of extreme age. And actually, Sarah didn't say it to Abraham. She was actually talking to herself about the news that had come that they were to have a child in advanced years. Let me read to you verse 11 of Genesis 18. Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Why does Peter make mention of that? I think it's because this is a situation where Sarah was in autopilot. She wasn't really calculating in that moment how she responded to Abraham. She wasn't really thinking about submission to her husband. She wasn't addressing anyone. But what came out as she processed this news that they were going to have a child, what came out about her husband was a deep sense of respect. From the overflow of her heart, her mouth spoke. And though Abram didn't hear it, God heard it. That was the hidden person of the heart. Which in God's sight is very precious. So the crux for wives 
is do you take the Lord seriously enough to want to please him with your heart attitude towards your husband and all the complexity of that? And it's exactly the same crux for the husbands. Look at the last sentence of verse 7. Husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter doesn't want any husband to walk away thinking that he can be neglectful or dishonoring or condescending, far less abusive to his wife, and still be on good terms with the Lord. Peter wants the husbands to know if there is a problem between you and your wife and you're responsible for it, there's a problem between you and the Lord. There's always a possibility, isn't there, that we can make ourselves look like godly men on Sunday morning. That we can make ourselves look like men who take him seriously. But actually be very different men behind closed doors in the discomfort of our own homes. Well, God won't have that. Look ahead to chapter 3, verse 12. We're going to come to it. God willing, in a Sunday or two. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What Paul said to the boys and girls about prayer is exactly right. He delights to answer prayer. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's why the husband who does not respond properly and love and cherish and make to feel special and know and serve in that way his wife will find he has a problem in relating to God. Peter calls that evil. When a man uses the husband's role in a way that diminishes his wife. It's evil. There's no excuse for it. There's no justification for it. It's the opposite of what men should be doing. There's no confusion in the Bible about this. There's no gray area. So there's the crux for husbands. Just exactly as the same as for the wives. How seriously do you take the Lord? And the responsibility he has entrusted to you. So for both the husband and the wife. The key is how clearly do we see the Lord. Of course the journalist in that article. The editor who signed off on it. The secular society and the culture. They generally don't believe in that there is a God. To know and love and be saved by. And that's why they're appalled by these verses. Because they can only see the reality of their own hearts. They can only see the chaos that tends when you say to a wife, submit to your husband. And I get that. And we have to hold out the Lord Jesus to that culture, broken though it is, hurt and confused though it is, and increasingly hurting itself. We have to hold out this glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus to that tragic culture in which we live, of which we are a part. And we would be as lost as anyone were it not for the grace of God. And we do it by the proclamation of the gospel, 
And we also do it as we live well as citizens, as employees, as wives, and as husbands in such a way that even though they do not obey the gospel, they may be won by the conduct of our lives. That's Peter's evangelistic strategy. So how aware are we in our lives from day to day of God's amazing grace to us? How much do we want not to please ourselves? How much do we want to please him? That's the crux. Wives, husbands, that's the issue. How big a figure is God as we relate to the state, as we relate to the boss, as we relate to our marriage partner? Let's pray together. And as we pray, I'm going to read from chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Just listen to this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, not just the wives. Clothe yourselves, all of you, husbands, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And so we ask our gracious Heavenly Father for the wives and the husbands hearing this word this morning that both would clothe themselves with humility towards the other. That there would be no self-assertive wife who ignores God's order and no husband who says, I've got my own slave. She'll do what I say. Help us to hear that you oppose the proud. You stand in the way of the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And maybe some of us need to be having conversations with our husbands or wives off the back of this and need to be encouraged to know that there is grace given to the humble. And so afresh this morning, we humble ourselves not under the hand of a husband, but under the, the mighty hand of God. And we hum, humble ourselves under your hand, our God, knowing that at the proper time, you're not going to crush us, but you're going to exalt us. That's the direction that this teaching is heading in, the exaltation of the wife, the exaltation of the husband. And in the midst of all the complexities of life, as we find it in 2024, we can cast all our anxieties on you, and there are many of them even arising from this material we've looked at this morning, knowing that you care for us and, oh, do you care for us. We praise you for the gift of your son and we pray for those who are hostile to him and hostile to his gospel and hostile to the proclamation of his word. We pray for them that they too might know this glorious gospel setting them free, 
opening their eyes, reconciling them to you and to one another, bringing them to a new life predicated on the new birth. In Jesus' precious name we pray.